to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Well, uh, Nick and I are really excited to have this conversation with you. Great, great uh, questions, all of you, and thank you for the commentary. Um, I think it's obviously better if we have a conversation than a lecture of any formal sort, but I did want to maybe offer a few minutes of framing remarks, if it's okay, just to set the stage. I might just do a few of the slides that I have behind me, and then we can use that as the conversation. I uh, was a student here. I got my master's in public policy, and I sat at an interesting intersection because I didn't know where to do my PAE. I, I was attracted to all the centers, the Center for Business and Government, uh, and the uh, Office of Science, the Center for Science and Technology Policy, and I didn't know where I fit in. And here's the nature of the question that I was trying to grapple with. The internet was, uh, I was here 95 to 97, so Netscape had gone public. I was at Morgan Stanley, which was the company that took Netscape public, although I was on the healthcare division, not the tech division. And the internet was going to have an influence on everything in our lives. So I was particularly focused on the impact the internet would have on the healthcare industry and uh, particularly interested in, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, I mean, uh, the first lady at the time was focused on her plan, and, and the plan didn't kind of make it through Congress, but the ideas in the plan were still discussed as to whether or not they could be implemented. And I didn't know where to take that, um, that, that PAE. So here's what actually happened for my, 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 uh, my program. I ended up concentrating with uh, Dorothy Zinberg at Science and Tech Policy. But my colleagues were mostly focused on literally like R&D agenda, not the applied side. I ended up asking Dr. Newhouse, who's actually at the medical school slash Kennedy School, for uh, advice uh, on, on the specifics of my, my, my PAE, which was around how internet technologies could influence academic medical centers for the good. And then uh, to make it all the more complicated, uh, I had Bob Blendon as my uh, advisor. Bob was a joint appointment uh, here at Shorenstein, I believe, and uh, had been the director of the School of Public Health at one point. And so, uh, in other words, collaboration was a common theme because there was no natural home for any one aspect of this. And my favorite personal experience was a course that was conceived of by the Kennedy School, the Law School, and the Business School. It was called Internet Strategy, uh, Policy, and the Law. And to my memory, I still think it was the only course that had been jointly offered by all three schools with faculty from all three schools in a given semester. We had two professors uh, here at the Kennedy School teach the... So the question was, look at the internet from every dimension, from the legal perspective, from the policy perspective, and from the commercial perspective. And this opened up my eyes that we were on to something new, which leads to this question, uh, why are technology and open innovation topics, generally speaking, important for policy students? Because there are really two types of people in this world. Those for whom they self-select as technologists and they want to be involved. And so there's a narrow group, maybe X percent of the population in the MPP class are interested in that. And what can they do to be successful is a narrow question. But the broader one is, how might we apply the capabilities that technology, data, and innovation offer in solving issues that we from people who may not actually think that they have any interest whatsoever to do with technology, but rather want a problem solved. This conversation is going to be about the latter, mostly, although obviously there are implications for the former. And I thought I'd begin with a little bit of an anecdote. Um, 
Thursday, I was on stage with Larry Summers, who we all collectively worship, right? Larry Summers, genius. Uh, I was, uh, uh, I, I, I technically was his peer, uh, if you looked at the org chart of the White House, but no one, you're not Larry's peer, you're, you're here and you, you sort of do this. And uh, he, he was, uh, uh, he said something that uh, inspired in me a little bit of this graphic, which is, I think there's a, a, a passing of the baton uh, underway. I don't know when and if it will fully be complete, but I think there, there likely is uh, some, some type of uh, shift occurring. And that is, over the last several decades, the Committee to Save the World was the economist's worldview as to how to intervene in policymaking, grow the economy, shared prosperity, you know, uh, globalization. And their ideas and tools, the economic toolkit or the economist toolkit, really carried the day, to this day still carry the day, in how we set policy. The, uh, and you all remember the Time cover story. I was, it was just finished the Kennedy School when I came out. Uh, the more recent Time story is called Code Red. Uh, this is not so much why healthcare.gov went down in its first month and a half of operations, but more so how was it recovered so quickly and resulted in now over 11 million people having access to insurance that they can afford. And it's the story of how technologists applying a new set of tools, some of it very specific, like can I code a website for the government, but more broadly, are there policy implications and policy tools that would create the conditions for more of those successes to happen more frequently and to expand beyond what they were able to do? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. And so I presented this early slide just to frame the conversation about maybe there's a, a passing of the torch or at least a welcoming of a new perspective that are, there are more tools in the toolkit to solve big problems. And what I'd love to do is define for you what those tools are. So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to this. What are the tools? The uh, tools are characterized by two very interesting characteristics. That's a, that's, I said the same word twice. But uh, here's how I would look at this. What I'm about to describe for you is a unique asset in Washington, bipartisan. This movement is characterized by handshakes and handoffs. Handshakes. Everything I'm about to describe for you as a tool is law. Bipartisan and something you can act on tomorrow without any additional act of Congress or act of the president. But Political action is insufficient to realize the benefits of these tools. What makes them messy is that in and of themselves, they enable handoffs to the American people or in, you're in Finland or wherever to actually build up the last mile of service delivery. And this has application not just in government uh, delivery itself, the distribution of benefits, the collection of taxes, and so forth, but rather that regulated sectors of the economy that have heavily um, influenced rules written by the government as to how they operate in healthcare, in energy, in education. In total, we believe that this combination of handshakes and handoffs will have the benefits not only of improving the lives of the American people or folks from around the world, but to actually create businesses, many of whom could become billion-dollar corporations at the same time.
this was going to unleash economic growth in problem solving. That's the hope. The four key policy levers that uh, I'd love to just put on the table for the discussion, and then uh, we could take the conversation in a number of directions. Number one, opening up data by default. So if we uh, think about the internet economy, the core asset in the internet economy is information. And what's exciting about this is government either regulates or holds more data than almost any other institution in the ecosystem. Its contribution to the ecosystem makes the entire uh, economy work better. So our first principle is that if you're in an agency, and this gets back to the question of FOIA, rather than wait for someone to ask if they have the legal right to this particular information, if you make that information available to the public, but more importantly, to do so in computer-friendly ways, as opposed to just printing a list, then it can become fuel for the broader internet economy. So principle number one, and I would say a large success we've seen in the last uh, five some odd years has been uh, the introduction of data sets that perhaps could have been legally available, might even have been physically available, but in a form that couldn't be computed against. Now fueling products and services that are born by the nonprofit, for-profit, academic, you name it, sectors. That's principle number one, open up data by default. Number two, and by the way, one of the interesting, just to give you an example of a small little anecdote, my wife and I are blessed with three children, including a six-month-old baby, and one of the most frustrating things as a parent is having to install the infant car seats into the car. And if any of you have tried to do this, you stick your knee in the thing and you push hard, you do. Um, over a weekend, at a similar hackathon, like you just ran a Smart Cities hackathon, someone shared, uh, yeah, someone shared the uh, statistic that 50% of these car seats are installed incorrectly in the country. Okay, now, pause. When one normally hears of this, the presumption is, okay, we need more regulation in the industry to make it better or we need to fund a nationwide education campaign to inform people of this problem, or we have to uh, potentially uh, subsidize maybe uh, uh, better products that are out of reach for those who can't afford them. Any, any one of these policy levers might be what you were taught here at the Kennedy School, to say, okay, how do you do this? How do you build coalitions and where you know, can you find the political will and the, the windows of opportunity to open up and, and, and engage? Uh, instead, over the very same weekend, someone found out that the Department of Transportation has always kept a database of the ease of installation of infant car seats. A consumer reports for every car seat sold in America. Just sitting there at the DOT website, okay? Put it up there at the hackathon, uh, and and someone. Uh, and the second data set was uh, addresses for every facility in America, mostly fire departments, but lots of others, where you could have it freely tested. These data sets were then made available, and by the end of the weekend, an iPhone app had been built that my wife and I used to go quickly find the neighborhood uh, location that could check to see if, yes, ours was improperly installed and it was corrected. So. What was essentially, what could have been a big political fight, debate, money, regulation, role of government, was, hey, we have this, put it out there, let the entrepreneurial handoffs begin, and we had access.
Second, standards. It turns out that uh, competition policy is actually quite good uh, in, in fostering innovation, uh, but new to competition policy, normally competition policies, Justice Department, antitrust, you know, there are all these kind of, uh, you know, legal remedies. Uh, one that had not traditionally been seen in the toolkit had been the move towards standardizing regulated sectors of the economy and the rules around data access. So Nick and I worked to say, look, if I'm a customer of NSTAR, I have the right to my energy data. And NSTAR just put a smart meter in my home, funded by the Recovery Act, by the way, and it can produce my energy consumption data in 15-minute intervals. Yet I still find out how much energy I consumed when they send me the bill at the end of the month. What if I could get access to my data feed? Not because I want to look at a long string of numbers, but I want to hand it off to an entrepreneur who's going to give me advice as to when I can turn up or down my thermostat to save money. As the president says, can we double energy productivity in this country? Well, you can't double energy productivity if you can't access the data. So standards is a bipartisan act of Congress that said the government shall convene the private sector in technical standards to foster interoperability or sharing. And the premise was, could we get the utility sector, uh, auto manufacturers, building electrical vehicles, you name it, to agree on common technical approaches, the VHS Betamax fight? Could we engage in a consensus building process more actively where uh, we're playing the role of convener? I call this government with a lowercase g. We can't force NSTAR to do something with your data per se, but we can... Um, uh, we can get them to voluntarily agree to commit to a program that says we want to uh, open up that data. And in fact, uh, Nick, uh, to his credit, kept browbeating the industry uh, after I left the White House. And I would say, what, 70 plus million Americans today, 100, 100, million, Americans. 100 million Americans today get energy from a company who voluntarily pledged to provide a green button when you log into your screen where you can download your energy consumption data and share it with whomever you want. And some have gone further to allow you to connect an app of your choice to your energy consumption data. What was previously an anathema, the utilities and Google hated each other because Google wanted to come up with a power meter product and they wanted to ram it into the utilities and they said, no, cybersecurity threat. We work together, no fee, no subsidy, no law, no mandate. We we use the convening power of standards to drive down the barriers to entry and create the conditions for uh, data liquidity in the regulated sectors. That's the second tool. Third tool, uh, thanks to a, bi and again, bipartisan, bipartisan act of Congress, uh, every federal agency now can look for non-traditional problem solvers, up to $50 million issuing challenges, prizes, and competitions. We created a portal called challenge.gov where you can see all the agency's competitions. So uh, if you believe in climate change, you're not going to find a lot of Republicans who want to sign on to any kind of tax program where you tax coal or oil to subsidize uh, solar. However, you will find widespread Republican support for strategies to lower red tape. And if you take a look at the solar industry, just as an example, if you benchmarked Germany and the U.S., the uh, delta between the cost to install solar is about a billion dollars of what we would call a hidden tax against the solar industry in the US. Why? Paperwork. Try to get a permit for a solar panel in the city, in the city of Boston. In New York, it's like seven months or so of wait time. 
It's like worse than waiting for the cable guy because you got to pay engineers top dollar to do this. So the Department of Energy has issued a $10 million prize. They will offer a prize to the team of entrepreneurs who can successfully install solar panels at a dollar a watt. That is to say the non-hardware costs or the soft costs of solar, the permitting, the financing, the customer acquisition. If you can get those parts right, you can win a $10 million prize. But what you're really doing is you're cutting the time it's going to take to get to grid parity for solar from what is estimated to be 2020 to potentially 2017 or 16. Republicans love that. I'm not trying to be partisan or whatever, but I'm just saying, again, handshakes. We have law allowing us to run these types of competitions, and you'll often be uh, encouraged for folks to sign up for. Lastly, uh, lean startups. That is to say, when government is engaged in particular bottlenecks that need to be addressed, there's now an emerging methodology that says, if you can assemble a team of experts internally, combined with a team of experts bringing outside expertise, if you organize it the right way under the principles of an agile, lean startup, this is a book written in Silicon Valley as a Bible for folks who want to create startups, can we apply those lessons learned in the public sector? And the, uh, the countless stories of, of, of examples, but in fact, that code red I was describing for you is sort of the quintessential example of how they uh, applied the learnings of a, of a lean startup in order to get uh, the, the, the sort of healthcare.gov uh, version 2.0 off the ground and running. And so in that regard, it's about increasing what my successor's successor calls the TQ of government, the technical quotient, so you can have more folks on staff capable of actually working and organizing and governing these kinds of essentially startups within the government to solve specific problems. Uh, the FDA is seen as a big bureaucratic mess, uh, hindering uh, innovations in the medical industry to helping the people in need. We launched the innovation pathway where Dean Kamen, not too far from here, Dean Kamen, the inventor of the Segway, publicly critical of the FDA, saying that it's killing people and hurting veterans. He invented an arm that you could, uh, that could give a, a veteran who's lost uh, their limbs basically near full, full motion, uh, miraculous invention, couldn't get FDA approval for it. Now there's an innovation pathway built by and for entrepreneurs that says, how do we balance new ideas, new approaches with our need for safety? And the answer was, if we did more shared opening of data up front and had input in the process, then we could avoid the I've given you all that I have, say yes or no to my project, when they really want to say, well, you didn't ask this question, you should have done that, they can do that much earlier. These four levers are at the heart of what I think a policymaker can invoke, typically at no cost or modest cost, uh, and typically with uh, bipartisan support. So this isn't an ideological issue. It puts a premium on the handoff. How do you get ecosystems uh, formed around wanting to play in these proverbial sandboxes and build that, that set of last mile activities. In fact, that's the subject for Wednesday's yep. class. Okay. I'm done lecturing. Nick, I fill in the I the 30-second friendly amendment uh, to, to Anish. Um, uh, increasingly, the way government services are designed, so the kind of policy making, and the way they are delivered uh, has a digital component to it. Yes. Right? So how we made policy a generation ago maybe was a much more closed, 
uh, uh, environment, much more on paper, much more the experts in a room. And the way that we delivered uh, services was you know, very much uh, in-person, uh, field offices, uh, through the mail, et cetera. Increasingly, how we design policy and how we deliver government services and how we keep government accountable uh, has a digital component to it. How we buy products and services, uh, uh, often in the billions or tens of billions, uh, has a digital component. And so digital literacy, uh, 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 TQ, technical quotient, as Megan Smith, the current CTO, talks about, is increasingly uh, vital. vital and fundamental. And so one of, the, one of our uh, arguments this week will be that understanding technology, innovation, and design are absolutely necessary for uh, students uh, and practitioners of, of government and politics. And I think we see this a little bit in politics, and we all kind of say, well, look at, look at all the data and technology that's in, in the Obama in, campaign. That's in the Obama campaign and in campaigns uh, globally. And uh, on the design side, uh, campaigns know how to essentially uh, make uh, candidates uh, uh, very desirable and, 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 and kind of design, design all of that. But in the fundamental development of policy and the delivery of government services, uh, they are increasingly uh, digital and kind of technical fluency uh, is going to be absolutely required. We require our policy students to understand uh, economics and statistics today. Uh, they're absolutely going to have to understand technology, data, uh, design, or innovation, or we're going to do a disservice uh, to, uh, to the students uh, of really the world, because Kennedy School is is training the future uh, government leaders uh, of tomorrow. I fully accept that friendly amendment, and I agree with it 100%. <laughs> uh, Should we open up? Now let's have a conversation. Let me, have, uh, let me take my... You may. My, my per Godfather prerogative. prerogative, yes. If you are interested in increasing your TQ, I mean, the Kennedy School gets people who have a very high TQ, and it gets people with a very low TQ sure. all over the world. If you come with a low TQ, is there a mechanism that is readily at hand, just like the things you're talking about, for fundamentally increasing your TQ without, without an elaborate sort of, uh, you know, signing up for courses and and, and whatnot. Is there an yeah. autodidact element to this? Yes, just get started, because I think that's the the there's there's this uh, and I say this as someone who is trained in policy, as 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 an MBA. Neither of us are engineers. The current CTO is. of of the, of the U.S. government is, a, is an engineer. She's actually a mechanical engineer, not a software engineer. Uh, uh, but, you know, technology is not this binary thing. And I think a lot of folks who were not trained uh, from, from technology at the beginning think that it's, it's you have to be, uh, go through engineering school, you have to be formally trained as a, as a software developer. That is nonsense. It is, technology today is, is just taking that first little step. And so I'm sure at the hackathons you had this weekend, there were plenty of people who, who self-identified that they were uh, a little tentative or afraid, et cetera. And you will see that the, 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 you know, it is about getting started. And it is simple. you can learn, learn all kinds of things uh, on the internet. You can go, there are tech meetups every day of the week in any major metropolitan city where people are getting together and talking about these, these things free of, free of charge. It is a open and collaborative uh, community uh, and you really just need to take the first step. 
Alex, the way I, I, I agree with everything Nick said, I would say the fundamental discipline that I'm hoping this will uh, plug into or enable is, is product development and essentially new product development. And what I mean by that is a lot of the policymaking process assumes a fixed product, broadband, and says that's the good that we want propagated and what are the various cost-benefit analyses for making that investment and generating a payback and calculating the payback and all the things that we do in class to study those, those, those uh, equations. But what we're saying here is, is there a product that is, uh, or a discipline around product development that suggests what's 80% of that good that may be able to be achieved at 90% less the cost, or stick with 80-20 rule, 20% of the cost. And, and what you'll find is that with even no background in engineering whatsoever, one can ask the kinds of questions, what problem are we trying to solve? What data assets would be necessary to fuel a product that can help solve it? And then what mechanisms can we create to foster as many uh, shots on goal as as possible. You know, I um, we're going to get into this today. We're hosting a bunch of uh, uh, folks in the labor market, from LinkedIn to government employees, government agencies. When you walk into the unemployment office in Virginia, where I was in the cabinet, and I observed 20-plus percent unemployment in Martinsville, and I sat and I walked, the governor had this concept of a cabinet community, Alex, where the uh, governor would take the cabinet to parts of the state, you know, every, uh, it was brilliant. Tim Kaine, now senator, another worship. Uh, when you observed a, an, a, an older man request whether there are any jobs available for someone with his or her background, in this particular case, I, I observed a conversation where the answer was no jobs available, and uh, the closest one with your background is 200 miles away person left dejected, depressed, sad. And I then studied what were the information sources that led for this conversation to take place. Turns out the government has its own proprietary list of jobs. I wonder if the Kennedy School posts its job openings on the government proprietary database. I'm going to guess likely not. Most people who do are those that are forced to do so because of some regulatory issue for disability issues or for uh, veteran hiring or whatever, they're out compliant. And so state labor boards basically are in the business of trying to cajole employers to feed this database. So number one, incomplete. The hospital down the street was absolutely hiring, just not in the database, number one. Number two, what was the profile of the man that had come in? How, how did the software interpret his skills. One value, the ONET code that he had to self-enter. Can anyone here tell me what ONET code you are? Does anyone know what ONET is? I'm sure Jackie can. When I left the Navy, yeah, thanks, Alex. I went to right, the, right the jobs you. thing, and there was an ONET profile, and it says what kind. And I think I qualified as like a uh, crosswalk lead. I was an officer of the warship. Listen to this. Just listen to this. A crosswalk? A janitor. I could be a crosswalk for like a person who like directs traffic, traffic cop. So just a safety, you were, you safety were an guard. officer in the Navy. Yeah, it's, 
two master's degrees. I was the director of a warship in Bahrain. I worked at a think tank, did policy with yes. Michelle Flournoy. It defined... So when he... When, now, under the law... Under the law, under the law, if he ever filed for unemployment and he was entitled to UCX, which is a program run by the DOD, and if he ever, he is required to use this crappy software to define himself, where theoretically it's doing the, quote, matching. How big is your DD-214? It's two pages. And it goes on. Afghanistan veteran. At a minimum, another department of the government has a skills profile on him, which goes on for two pages. So here you have this policymaking, reasonably good idea. If you file for unemployment, you must submit your profile. And we have to put you through screening to make sure that you're an active job seeker. No lazy bums allowed in our unemployment roles. Yet by doing it closed, government-run, bottlenecked in 2015 if he walked into the same office in Boston it'll be the exact same his definition is safety patrol whatever how can anyone build a software platform that says what's the likelihood that a safety patrol officer is going to be a Silicon Valley software startup executive however LinkedIn could do that in their sleep I bet you the jobs they recommend to you on LinkedIn are a lot closer to rational thinking than what this experience was. Sure. Yet no government agency allows LinkedIn as the alternative to what the government funds. You, you're, in fact, you're barred from even going to that website because somehow it's like corrupting or shady or something. I don't know what the reason is. So the TQ question you asked you don't have to know how LinkedIn builds recommendations engines to know the core principle that there should be product development in the way we design the unemployment systems and that one that ossifies to the old way is generally bad and one that's more open, inclusive, and allows an app store of, 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 of job matching tools that the, 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 the job seeker can choose from better. So that's so, the challenge. So just to, to kind of complete this this particular example, imagine by rule or by law, we're forced to use a closed program with this closed database. But what if it were to, to accept data from recommendation engines like LinkedIn so that it could give you better recommendations? So you'd still have that required worker training because the legislation requires it from this particular state unemployment, but it's able to accept public private partnership input from from recommendation engines that actually really that's understand the, you. That's the challenge. And we're going to hopefully design that today. And if anyone wants to come to our session one to four, we're going to be preparing that that the foundation for that. Okay, topics, questions, reactions, issues that you want to cover, please. So I don't know what it was like while you were at the Kennedy School, but um, we fun, exciting, dynamic. No, of course, but um, of course, the class, uh, the way we experience this cl classes and evaluations mostly revolve around the check, check plus, check minus. Did you experience that? I don't even remember that. What oh, is that? Okay. Is that how we graded the you mean the yeah, quality? Yeah, like problem sets. You would get a check plus. Oh, I see. The feet, like the, as opposed to grades. Yes. I didn't. I didn't care. Oh yeah. I, I absorbed like a sponge the awesomeness of this experience. Just all the 
conversation. But yes, maybe I looked at my transcript. I actually don't even know. I might want to get a copy of it. I don't know how I did. <laughs> did we get grades? I thought we got, did. We did get grades. Okay. But the homework assignments are check plus, check minus. Check plus, check minus, or check. Okay, got it. Um, yeah. So within that kind of framework that we all know so well, I was wondering, what can you, how can you define what like a check plus for TQ would look like in a Kennedy school student, for a Kennedy school student? Like what would you hope an exceptional Kennedy school student would know about data and technology when they graduated? What do you think every That's a great know? question. What do you think that like Nick, you go first. Yeah. Okay. So I think there's I think there's there's That's a great question. I think there's two pieces to this. Uh, one is a uh, introduction to uh, technology and internet policy. Right? I think uh, it's it's fundamentally uh, something that cannot be ignored. Uh, and it doesn't matter what your area of specialty is. So if you are kind of a international relations expert and you want to think big thoughts about, about uh, nation states and, and, and all that kind of thing, for you to ignore the role of cybersecurity, offensive and defensive, or how ISIS is using social media and recruiting uh, folks to, to move, you, you, you cannot, uh, 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 any policy topic area, there's kind of this, this introductory to, to the internet and, and technology. The other piece is, uh, uh, and, and I think even, even more important, is, is practitioner skills. And th that I would divide into kind of three categories. One would be technology. The second one would be uh, innovation, specifically uh, open innovation. And the third would be design. Uh, and so technology, uh, you certainly would be uh, kind of a fluency in, in tools, but more than tools, it's an approach. Right, so that so that you really understand kind of how how to learn about technology because technology will change in five, ten, uh, fifteen years. On innovation, it really is this idea of of how do you start uh, projects, whether they are policies, initiatives, uh, new programs, uh, in this era of making, right? In this era of rapid prototyping, in this era of being able to A/B test things rather than simply try something for 10 years and have a longitudinal study and then kind of make some corrections. And then in this area of, of design, uh, uh, fundamentally understanding what constituents uh, 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 want and need. Uh, because uh, uh, at the end of the day, uh, design is about either designing for utility or designing for desirability. And, and mostly we need to do more of the former. There's so many uh, uh, great uh, uh, programs that fail short uh, because they do not understand design. Uh, and so I've, I've been in so many conversations with folks where they say, well, this is what, this, this is what, what we're trying to do. And I say, great. And they say, well, only 40% of the people get through this next step. And you start asking why. That's fundamentally a design question. It's a systems uh, and human-centered design question of, of why are people struggling to get past that next step. And usually the answer is it's too confusing, it's too complex, they don't understand. And so most of how we design our forms, our benefits, everything is just really, really confusing, right? And so simplicity is a big principle, but it's not the only principle in, in design. So those uh, technology, innovation, and design would kind of be the, the practitioner pieces of that. And that will, those will evolve, and some of those may be kind of things that need to be taught unto themselves but there's other pieces where it should be applied. So think about back to the technology side, uh, certainly talking about open data and learning about open data is tremendously important, but I think it's also incredibly important in the context of 
budgeting and fiscal transparency and accountability, right? And that's a, that, that in, in and of itself could be a case taught in one of the budgeting or financial classes uh, and, and the role of third-party actors using kind of uh, uh, fiscal transparency to understand kind of where we're spending and, and what we're not. So, yeah, um, I think so that I, I have felt many times that, uh, that uh, of course, we, we should learn to, to know the technology, but uh, sometimes I also hope that the technology should uh, learn to know the people, how, yeah. they, how they react and how they, what kind of the questions they do. And so, and in that way, I, I do agree that I think that the, or IT and the computers and everything, it's just taking the first step that they, they should learn to be more like us. In, in knowing that how to make this analysis. But I think about this uh, data, one, one very simple question, when you have this uh, experience of your own national system that how, how to try to find a, uh, a job. So I think that in the modern sustainable development, if we want to put the people in focus, so of course we have to uh, admit that not all people are covered that uh, you have also to, to make the system such kind that, uh, that uh, as we say, the man of the street, the woman of the street would understand the system because otherwise it's, it's no idea um, if you have to be a half master before you, you know how it works. But the second thing is that, for instance, the member of the government. Um, I think that employment is in this country and many other countries, most of the countries, it's a big issue. And then there's another question, you will have the labor markets here. So um, I, I have been co-chairing the ILO's uh, Globalization Committee 2004, uh, which was uh, trying to, to find a common language to those who were against the globalization and those who were for it. Mm -hmm. and, and so we noticed that the both were right. I mean, both have real experiences how, the, how it was. And one of the big issues was exactly employment. It was a question whether you can create more employment and where or whether you lose the jobs. And in the matter of fact that in 2004 we noticed that there was no, no statistics on that. Uh, in some countries had, but uh, uh, we didn't know whether they were good, whether they were realistic. And then how to put them together was the second point. So sometimes there is not existing data, yeah. but you Fair. could... Uh, uh, find and uh, what you could know. And that's why I think that uh, it's not only the GDP, what now is a quite clear thing, but what was not ten, uh, 10 years ago, that, that the only thing to measure, that whether the globalization or the sustainable development was good in that time, was only the GDP. And then we noticed that if you measure with GDP, you get the GDP, but you don't get the other, other factors. So I think that it's, it's extremely important, the open data, but it would be even more uh, more important that the data which exists will give the answers for the questions what are with the political importance. Of course, they can be vice versa, yes. and we will find with the data that something is, is relevant, that we have not noticed, that there is this A or B factor which is working in the society. But so I, I mean that uh, open data, yes, but data is not data as such, but it has been the, the correct question yeah, I couldn't agree more yeah. uh, that you have to start with the problem statement yeah. and then think think about all of the all of the tools and and kind of how the problem can be solved and and you're right that that if you if you don't have the underlying data then you ha then you have an incomplete conversation or you're actually managing an economy 
to to the data that you can measure, and then you can have some, some uh, repercussions uh, on that. On the complexity issue, I think it's really important that we understand what we're talking about here is making uh, government actually simpler and easier to use for constituents. And so today, uh, the new VA secretary, uh, uh, Bob McDonald, who used to run Procter & Gamble, he went on 60 Minutes in the fall and he said, why should a, a veteran have uh, a, a dozen passwords, uh, usernames and passwords, to the Department of Veterans Affairs? Uh, uh, why are we forcing a veteran to understand and absorb the complexity that is the VA, uh, similar to the way Amazon.com or others have uh, personalized uh, services, we too should personalize the VA and the set of services that it delivers uh, around the needs of the veteran. And I think that's a really important thing because technology need not be uh, more confusing or harder to understand. Actually, it should be oftentimes in the background. Uh, and and uh, the UK, I think, has, has really uh, done a lot of leadership here, too. So thinking about the whole, the whole service interaction, uh, oftentimes a lot of which is in person uh, um, and, or at a field office, and that digital is, is often only a component of an end-to-end service uh, transaction. Other questions? Yes, please. Sorry, I have a question, uh, one for each of you. Uh, the first uh, niche is for standards with regards to Internet of Things. Yeah, when you very much so. CDMA and GSM, the, the U.S. has done a poor job, yep. I think, in, yep. in regulating that. Mm -hmm. uh, Europe has sort of led the way, and mm -hmm. different countries got together, the European Union, to say, yep. let's do it better. Yep. What do you foresee being the standards of the Internet of Things? I don't think it's been well adjudicated thus far, and there's an explosion of innovation, and we're in a sort of the precipice of a mm -hmm. disaster unless the government creates conditions for successful IOT. So you can answer that, would be good. Yeah. And then, I guess I'll... Yeah, let me jump on that one yeah, real quick, sure. and then I'll let Nick uh, answer. So this is really critical. I actually am slightly negative on Europe's approach because top-down efforts can work, but they're painful, and they may not actually reflect kind of the entrepreneurial spirit of a, of a country. And, and I would argue that Qualcomm's massive success was in part because we didn't have that top-down, pick-the-wrong-technology uh, approach. So l let, me, let me actually say this, and I didn't, I'm a Democrat, so I never thought I'd say this. Herbert Hoover shows us the way. That's a novel thought. Yes. <clears throat> Herbert Hoover shows us the way. He struggled with this political mindset that is the government should not dictate top-down industry activity. After World War I, the aircraft production in the U.S. plummeted. He was Secretary of Commerce. And all, like a, I'm sure like the auto bailout, help us, help us, we, you know, the Europeans are beating us because they've got a top-down funded model. He chose not to uh, uh, fund a government-sanctioned approach. He did the opposite. Uh, and what is now coined the associative state was his uh, legacy as Secretary of Commerce. The associative state model is you assemble the industry, you identify areas of common challenge, and in a pre-competitive R&D fashion, you create an open model for work. It turns out that two of the reasons why aircraft stunk in that era is that they couldn't produce high-quality airfoils or engine cowlings. 
So the predecessor to NASA was created and funded under Hoover to solve that very specific engineering problem. And the two most successful aircraft of their era, the Boeing 247 and the DC-3, shared the common technical architecture for engine cowlings and airfoils. I would argue it's the opposite of the GSM approach that has gone on with um, uh, uh, mobile uh, data standards. I absolutely agree the Internet of Things will benefit from more standardization, but the question is the how. What is the policy intervention? And I would borrow more heavily from the associative state model, where the government's playing a convening role. When we looked at the smart grid, it could have been the case that the Chevy Volt would have built a proprietary plug that the power companies would have to choose to support or not support. And they could have used their muscle to mandate that if you're going to install a, a plug in the garage, make it conform to our standard, not the whatever, Nissan Leaf or whatever, Tesla. Instead, the Commerce Department, without any power, but for the act of Congress giving us $10 million to create these communities of interest, worked to get the players to pre in advance uh, determine technical standards for interoperability and exchange because there had been early enough that there was no one dominant player and everybody's incentives were aligned. I think that is exactly what's happening today and the agency to study is NIST. It's Governing Authority, it's Authority Act, and it's the National Institutes for Standards and Technology. It is the entity born of this, and it's in commerce for a reason. It's to foster commerce and the standardization with ex explicitly not by government dictating standards, but rather fostering an environment where a, the associative state can come together. And what will happen is very clearly early adopters, government plays the role as an early adopter, in which case it can help shape the requirements, as the DOD does on many occasions. It can go too far, but that's a role. Secondly, it can, uh, in regulated sectors, use the regulatory power to nudge and cajole. We used that in California, where the state of California had the authority to regulate the utility industry. I mean, every state does. They used their regulatory authority to take the very same open data standards that Nick and I worked on as voluntary, free, lightweight, national. They've now inculcated them into the state authority as regulation, so no wonder the California utilities are more mature in their use of these technologies because, yes, they were initially launched voluntarily, but they were scaled up using the, th the tools and the authorities that were there. So I, I would say IoT, yes, better with standards, but the role convene, potentially cajole and use a regulatory power. We, there's a term I use, regulatory on-ramp, where you might find ways to foster innovations in newer technologies that can graduate up into things that have more. Uh, that's a long answer to your simple question, but that's how I would look at it. Just on the TQ point, I think there's a fourth thing that I've seen in government leaders, especially military, for the you need. And it's like risk tolerance and managing risk. Yes. Yes. So this tension between cybersecurity and open data is massive. central. Yep. It's nobody the debate of our day. Nobody knows the decision matrix. So, so I just wanted to say yeah. some sort of Please. context. Yeah. So privacy versus um, the efficiencies of open data. So yes. We want to protect privacy. We want to seek efficiencies. Trade secrets versus innovation. What is the risk mitigation to allowing for innovation but protecting people's yep. IP? 
So how do you train TQ in those uh, expertise and risk? Brilliant. You yeah. want to take that? Yeah, so I, I think fundamentally in those three things, technology, innovation, design, innovation is about failing quickly and learning and having learning systems. Uh, and 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 how do you how do you fail quickly? And that is something that government does not well at all, uh, and the and the military doesn't do well at all. There was a study uh, uh, by the Standish Group that came out and said that uh, uh, ninety percent of U.S. federal IT uh, underperforms or fails outright. Usually, it underperforms. So we spend about eighty billion dollars a year, forty civilian and forty DoD and intelligence community, and most of it underperforms uh, because it essentially uh, goes through uh, years of discussion about what it should be, years of specking out those requirements, uh, years of building, and then by the time you get to year eight, you've spent billions of dollars, uh, and it fundamentally uh, uh, isn't serving the use case that it was designed or, or, or engineered to do so. Uh, and this is the, for the technical minded, it's called waterfall, because you kind of have this approach. And, and what we really need to be doing is much more of a prototyping uh, type of thing, which is how do you show a minimum viable product uh, uh, and show some value and learn from that? No one's willing to do the minimum viable product because the risk is too high. Sort of. So let me, this is, this is the useful thing. Alex, uh, I guess you asked the question about what, what does a check plus look like. If we took the analogy, there's a core curriculum course that I think should be introduced, which I think... Nick outlined quite well around just basic understanding of these levers and maybe the, the methodology of the questions you would ask to optimize your knowledge of these questions. But there's an, a set of optional courses, and the one I would describe here, and, and frankly, it's at the heart of my book, it's called Innovation Pipeline Management, okay? There is a science to risk tolerance. It's not binary. You have it or you don't. There's very thoughtful management science to take, a, you know, the problem is not a lack of ideas, whether they be policy ideas or startup ideas. The problem is scale up. And you, what you want to have is a thoughtful process to evaluate, stage gate, what have you. Nick gave you an example. Agile software development is a inherently uh, uh, useful in innovation pipeline management. But here's, the, but there are many others. And, and I, I looked at this question from a few, like a Rubik's Cube. So the first question I asked was, principal question, are there data assets held by the government about people? And if we do, there is no privacy, cybersecurity, nothing. That person's entitled to an electronic copy of that data. You as a veteran, you may not know this, you can now take an electronic copy of your DD-214 in blue button format. I don't know if you knew that or not. What is blue button? What, uh, so a classic example of why the, the differences between complicated and simple approaches. To get the DOD and the VA to talk to each other, we'll, we have already spent billions and will likely spend billions more, and it still won't work. Fundamentally, it's a security issue. Is Alex Jones the same Alex Jones when they traverse the database from the DOD to the VA? And how does one match and assure and it's, you have the right to do that, whatever. However, Alex Jones can log into the DOD website and pull down the Alex Jones healthcare record. Alex Jones, if eventually goes into the VA, can set up a username and a password for my healthy vet. And Alex Jones, too, can get a copy of the VA health information. 
So the uh, president in, in uh, August of, of 2010 issued a challenge, and we kind of prepped him for this, which is long before these billion-dollar systems talk to each other, I, he, I, I will give you in 90 days a blue button you can push that would allow you to safely and securely download your own data. Now, it started with a limited amount of data that was available on the website on day one, but now has evolved. So to this, you know, and, and a million veterans have pushed this blue button for free. In the security risk tolerance, the idea was that the inverse of HIPAA is HIPAA constrains the data sharing behind the scenes, but it actually liberates the data, which is I'm entitled to my own data, and if you don't give it to me, the government's going to fine you for withholding my data. We changed the law to change the rules to reflect this proactive statement. So on anything that involves my personal data, the security risk, our hack was, and we're going to talk about it on, on Wednesday with the Berkman Center, our hack on the policy front is don't just state that the person has the right to their own data, make the technical methods easy. And eventually one click connect. So if you did set up a LinkedIn profile and you wanted to one click connect your DD214 to it, you should be able to make that connection. We're going to get there. So uh, that idea allowed the risk issue off the table. So Medicare, the most powerful weapon to fix the American healthcare system is to open up Medicare claims data. It's no, it knows more about the performance of the American healthcare system than any other database, more than any Blue Cross, Blue Shield, whatever. They have 40% of the volume flowing through their database. At best, Kaiser's 3% in any market, and Blue's are maybe 15%, okay, 20%. So they're not going to do that, privacy security. So we said Medicare Blue Button. Every Medicare beneficiary can download three years of their claims history. And if a company is really awesome at this, they can convince folks to delegate that, that handoff to them, and then they can build the solution. So that's step one. And there are many of these kinds of questions, which is what are the authorities we have? What are you trying to liberate? What kind of product development are you trying to foster? And I tried to look at the problem we were trying to solve, the information assets that could help inform that problem, and then sort out what are the best pathways. If the government was funding it, our risk tolerance was low. If the private sector was funding it, it was very high if all we had to do was produce a data set. So I tried to um, come up with a mathematical equation on policy, which is if I want to solve this, I need their capital, our data, these developers in this context, and this is where I can create incentives to have that stuff scale up. Th that's not a core course of the Kennedy School. I think that's a master's, the, the PAE like specialty. But if we had people trained in that discipline, many of these seemingly unsolvable or insurmountable policy levers, levers can all of a sudden be put in the lens of this model where more innovation pipeline management's happening. I just, just practically speaking, I've been in these conversations or we'll spend a year talking about the what if, the threat of the bad actor, and it's like, okay, well, let's find a way to sandbox this, right? Let's find a way, you know, if, if we want to debate this for a year, that's fine, but let's let's find a, a, a sandbox. A testing box. A test box, and so it could be geographic, it could be time limited, it could be with just something so that you can actually try it, because I think that's the other really important thing here is yeah, our- That's step one of innovation our, pipeline. Our, our ability to, to try things get, gets us more comfortable with uh, the risks. And it also gets us comfortable with the benefits. So in the, in the internet world, in the commercial world, you see so much of, I'm going to offer you some value, 
and I'm going to ask for some trade-offs on privacy. And there's that commercial benefit, uh, and then that privacy trade-off. We, in government, oftentimes spend only, you know, years and years debating and trying to mitigate the risk, and you can't get to zero. So if you're not also piloting and experimenting and making sure that there is real uh, value to constituents, to citizens, to residents, uh, then, then it's a one-sided conversation. And that's true in the, in the cybersecurity world as well. Yes, sir. So, um, with this session being about um, public policy students, I'm uh, interested in your um, experiences of talking to Kennedy School administrators and that there are yeah. at other public policy yeah. schools. Because I imagine it would, to some extent, reflect your conversations with other senior bureaucrats, which is people <coughs> who aren't spending their day speaking about this. How persuasive yeah. are they? What reception do you get? So they I'll, offered I'll, us this role. It yeah. <laughs> says something. So I'll give you, I'll give you a, a very practical example. Uh, we were trying in government uh, to get uh, the Department of Education to uh, open up its free application for financial student aid, FAFSA uh, form. And we were talking about why it would be valuable to build an application programming interface, an API, so that KIPP schools or LA Unified or some other uh, organization could help students as a part of being a rising senior fill out this application. If you fill out this application, you're more likely to orient towards four-year schools, you, you get money from the federal government, et cetera, and there's huge public policy implications here of everyone filling out the FAFSA, and yet we have millions of kids that don't do it, and what the White House and, and what the Department of Education spent a lot of time doing is uh, public service campaigns, sending the first lady to schools, a whole, bu you know, a great website. We do all this work to try and get people to fill it out, and uh, yet we don't uh, do this ourselves. Uh, just bear with me because it's a good story. And so the, um, uh, the argument, when we went and kind of met with senior administrators in, in education, we started talking about this, this API, and they said, well, what's an API? And it turns out they just Googled it the day before. Right? And there's no shame in that. That's part of learning about, about, about technology. Uh, but fundamentally, we, we weren't making the case very effectively. So this was, this was on me, and this was on, 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 on our team. And I realized the, the analogy that stuck the best was this idea of retail versus wholesale. This idea of uh, government understands retail very well in money, right? And wholesale as well. So we, we give out benefits, we send checks directly, but we also understand about giving money to municipalities, to nonprofits, to a whole set of intermediaries, right? So we understand kind of retail government. I'm not talking about the campaign, but I'm talking about in terms of service delivery and benefits. And then we understand kind of wholesale giving it to intermediaries to kind of do social uh, good or pub public good. We don't understand that as well in the digital <coughs> domain. And I had failed clearly in the uh, explaining to education. When I started, uh, using the analogy of retail wholesale, and I said, you know, what about taxes? And you can go to irs.gov, or you can go to TurboTax. And TurboTax provides a useful experience. Uh, for those of you who don't do your taxes in the U.S., it's a very user-friendly experience that kind of then submits your information to, to the IRS. That was the analogy that got the Department of Education understanding uh, that. And that is exactly the, the conversation uh, that we've been having with the administration here, uh, Kennedy School administration, is, is that kind of retail versus wholesale, I think, is the level that you have to engage. And so far, it's been very promising. All the conversations I've had have been fantastic. But it, it gets from the theoretical to the practical, right? Which is, that's great, but how do you do that? 
I found myself ch so the dean of the Woodrow Wilson School is my former co our former colleague C.C. Rouse who was with me at the White House so we're very close and so I've done a bunch of stuff there and they've done a lot more joint venturing with their computer science program undergrad so they've kind of Woodrow Wilson plus computer science um, here was the test I asked Dean Elwood who wrote the case study on data.gov has anyone had a course yet with the case study on data.gov HBS. Shame on the Kennedy School that the case study for data.gov is written by the business school and not the Kennedy School. Like that to me was just mind-blowing. And so uh, that I teased a bit of the policy schools, you know, how could that possibly be? And uh, in part they did it because they saw huge economic potential, you know, the Climate Corporation took two government data sets, or you know, a couple of them, built a new model to forecast uh, for purposes of building a, a, a you know crop insurance product, and Monsanto bought this basically thirty-person startup for a billion dollars, just by repurposing government data sets, basically, and um, that's oversimplifying it. But but that's I've been here a little bit. I mean, this is Anisha's first week in residence, and I've been here a few months. So I've I've had a number of conversations, and there's definitely a willingness to and an interest here. And I think uh, the administration is excited to participate in an event that uh, Denise and Allison are putting on uh, at the end of the week. That I'd encourage everyone to to come. Uh, but ultimately, it, it it can't be a a top down kind of thing. It has to be something that faculty, staff, and students all collectively uh, want to change. And I and I think it's. Uh, certainly having uh, uh, leadership say this is a good idea uh, is helpful top cover, but we had a saying in the, in the administration that executive orders are not self-executing. Definitely not. So if, if uh, Dean Elwood and, and we'll have a new dean uh, say uh, we need to do more technology innovation and design, if we need to teach more tech policy, that would be great as a statement, uh, but that's not going to be self-executing. So it's, it's how do we uh, uh, kind of build the facts on the ground? Uh, and part of that is people, right? How do you uh, recruit the faculty, the staff, the fellows, and the students who care about this, uh, who are going to both learn and teach this, right? Part of it is uh, instructional in terms of how do you build this into uh, both the core curriculum and the optional curriculum, right? Uh, so there's a, a bunch of different pieces to it, but you've got to get started because you could debate it for, for years, or you can just get started. I would say a great start is the idea that you have expressed this morning about what the core curriculum should be, what the course should be, what the optional courses should be. I mean, that's his idea. very, very explicit and concrete. I think that's a great start. We might, we might do that. Lightning round. Let's go through quick stuff before you have to catch your flight. <laughs> Others, how, what, what topics can we cover in the last 15 minutes that's productive for folks? Yes? Quick question on the other side of what uh, no data set is published on data.gov without going through not only a security lens on the data set itself but what's called the mosaic effect which is often each data set itself is not as harmful but in combination it could reveal things that would lead to issues. So we have an, a, a security team that had been clearing data sets for that purpose. My instinct is that uh, if you take a look at the cybersecurity risks the country faces, they're largely password management, bad data practices, 
not so much people manipulating government data sets for the bad. You know, uh, uh, we've had five years of experience now with data.gov. I don't think we've seen a published report of a sort of a mosaic effect-like problem. It's always a systems administrator here at the Kennedy School has the token that opens up every one of your personal emails and they get mistakenly click a bad link, you know, that talks about the Oscars and they think it's funny, look at this clip and they download malware and all of a sudden their username and password is compromised. So like the whole world is like realizing that, that a systems administrator that has the ability to open up all of your email is a dangerous person to have only have one factor authentication for uh, purposes of getting in. And so you're starting to see better hygiene, you know, uh, two-factor authentication and other things. But th this is a red herring in, in the question of whether or not the data sets that are being made available are contributing to this problem. In fact, very little uh, are, are in that domain. We've had 200 new companies born uh, in open health data, McKinsey recorded. And we have a national data breach law that says that if you have a HIPAA healthcare data breach, you're obligated to report on it. So we have a very good data set. 98% of those data breaches are this systems administrator, someone clicked a bad link, not the anything to do with the government's opening up of data. Rapid fire, other topics. Yes, what are please. some um, successes, interesting successes or interesting failures that you've seen in um, open data uh, at state and local levels? So clearly, uh, there are three things I would say about this. Uh, one of the most um, impactful case studies, and you said you're doing a civic participation startup? Yes. Uh, basically, reporting potholes on your smartphone. I mean, I'm overly simplifying it, but basically, we're now in a competitive market where uh, municipalities can either build their own capacity or outsource it for very cheap to entrepreneurs to help the public take pictures of things that need fixing and then fostering them getting fixed. That industry has now matured and I think is starting to have a pretty big impact. Um, many, 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 many failures. And, and mostly the failures are missed opportunity failures. I don't, you can't claim a failure if they put up a data set and no one does anything with it because the marginal cost of putting up the data set was negligible. So the true failure cost was not so much the time spent putting the data set up. It was the lack of time spent incorporating that data set into the building of new products and services. So I would say many, 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 many more failures if you define failure as we didn't optimize the value of the data set through the handshake handoff model. Tons of no handoffs because no one knew to come over. But um, I wouldn't call that a, a failure of creating the data set on data.gov in the first place because that's, that, that, that's negligible. And then third, I would say, and this gets to be a little bit about where you were going with FOIA, I would say there is a widespread failure in executive orders are not, what did you say, they're not self-executing? Self-executing. Um, I would say that the people who request FOIAs are frustrated because they thought they were getting access to things that they're not really getting access to. And even with executive orders and rules and everything else, data sets that should be made public are not. And, and that's a culture issue. It's an implementation issue. We need more awareness of requested FOIAs that fail. Um, my favorite simple story is this startup realized that 401k management fees were all over the place. 
and that um, if you're a small business with less than $5 million uh, in assets under management, you could pay as high as 10% management fees. Whereas if you're a big corporation like Harvard University, I bet you they're paying less than 1% management fees. Here's the interesting thing. If, is there a 401k plan here at Harvard? There's a version of it. Yeah. Whatever it's called. Does anyone know what the fees are that you pay? I don't. You probably don't. Under Department of Labor regulation, that data is re required reporting at a, a report that's issued to the federal government. I think there's like 60,000 companies that have to file this report. So FOIA, these two kids, Brightscope, these two entrepreneurs, like the only way they could get the data was they had to physically be in the library of the Labor Department, pay five cents a page for each of the 60,000 filings to get Xeroxed in the location. And uh, this was in the Bush administration, not to blame the Bush administration, but just the culture was FOIA, you had to go do this. Then we switched the default setting, Obama day one, open government, what have you. And, and the librarian's like, oh, I have these on CD-ROM. I guess I can just give you the CD-ROM. Mm. Culture, failure, right? So I think these are the, that's kind of how I'd grade. Overall, more failures than wins on the fact that people haven't been using these tools. There's an interesting uh, a case that was just ruled on a couple of weeks ago for an open uh, data request in electronic format of the IRS for the 990. Correct. That's why I was asking your thought. Information. And um, the IRS had declined to provide it electronically, even though they had received the information. Electronically. Electronically, originally converted it into some paper format. And, and scanned then, it back and in. And the organization requesting the data had to go through the cost of the conversion from the paper format back to electronic data. So the district court judge has ruled that the IRS has to produce, at least for the, the plaintiffs in that case, uh, that information in electronic format. I haven't read or heard yet whether or not the IRS will choose to appeal that to the circuit court. And what was the IRS's argument? It, mostly it's privacy. privacy. So most yeah. of the issue is, so but here's the interesting question. In, in the state government, we had this legal debate. Why do we have to put social security numbers in everything? So we went through all the government forms and said, do you have to have social security numbers on every form that people fill out for the government? We inventoried so many forms that asked for it that didn't need to be asked for it. So part of this issue is when you think of information in the supply chain, you start all the way of what was the source of the data requested. You were kind of hinting at this conversation. Is the data sometimes doesn't exist, or if it does, it's in the wrong way. Because if you don't, Nick's got a much better line, wholesale retail. I'm going to use that from now on. I always thought about it as design information collection for reuse at the outset. Because if you know, because most people in the department, I, I am instructed to collect data. I'm going to go get the data, and I'm going to minimize the burdens, and I'm going to get the data. But if you thought of reuse, that is, this data set will be on data.gov, let me begin the process of ensuring, okay, so maybe I don't need to ask for social security because I don't know how to redact that or whatever before it goes on the data.gov. That's the mindset. Well, the challenge is, is you're having to change uh, a bureaucracy that's grown up with paper. Correct. And begin to think about how do you design the system so just exactly as you're saying, what is, what's the critical information we really need? Correct. And how do we, and how do we input that electronically? How do we flow it in into the system? And in the case of the IRS, I think what they what they have said in years past and what they would say today is they don't have the resources uh, to do that, at least in the exempt organization area. And then flow it out you got it. through the open data process to third parties and outside parties to be able to use that information however they see fit. Yeah, so look. Uh, it's a leadership. 
it starts with leadership. Yes. We, second, technology, lack understanding technology, um, and then financial resources and the will and commitment to apply them. Yep. So IRS wants to do this. Treasury wants to do this. Uh, uh, the administration wants to do this. Uh, but you have budgets uh, being slashed by 10 percent and, and those, those kinds of things. And so as it is, the IRS is struggling to answer calls within an hour or, or those, those, those kinds of things. And so the marginal dollars are going towards kind of core uh, uh, revenue collection uh, and, and customer service. Now, uh, I think it actually points to a really interesting problem is how do we fix legacy systems and, and essentially paper-based problems? And this is at DOD, at IRS, at any of our large uh, institutions. And there's, there's one idea of, well, let's start afresh. Let's kind of have a clean sheet of paper, et cetera. Uh, and, and let's you know, start from the beginning. That usually doesn't work. Um, what, what does work and where the new digital services at the White House, where the 18F unit at General Service Administration, the VA is building new digital services, and actually a number of other uh, federal agencies are building new digital service units, is how do you apply lean startup principles to reimagining uh, digital services, including the provisioning of, of open data uh, that are a byproduct of uh, uh, tax filings. That's what th we're talking about here is that nonprofits uh, essentially submit their tax filings to the IRS and those uh, are, everyone agrees, should be made available to the world and they're not. The answer is how do you do things in a, in a kind of iterative approach so that kind of understand the problem, alpha a particular product, beta a particular product, and then, and then go live. And that, that uh, as the UK has demonstrated, has actually shown to do things faster. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually confident that we're going to so solve this 991 within 12 months. So uh, in, uh, I'm going to use this as an example because it gets to the question of learning. What do we learn? Uh, if we're going to take the last minute, I want to, uh, first time I've heard the question, I'm going to on the spot share with you how I would tackle this issue. Because I, I know the IRS in the sense that every time I went over there, they were like, go to hell. I mean, they were nicer to Nick than they were to me. Um, and he's a nicer guy. So then I, and I, I kind of pick my battles. But I'm not going to be disrespectful. But here, here's my point. If you start the conversation, I've got to convert IRS data from A to B, it's a $50 million prospect before you get started. And there was no free money for that. So the answer to that was, uh, why even bother? Here's what I would have done. Or here's what, here's what I would do right now as feedback. I would say, okay, what are the open data standards that the nonprofits themselves can adopt to put on their own websites their tax filings in a machine-readable form? Here's an example. The IRS mandates that the hospitals that take a 501c3 exempt, um, you know, they get the tax breaks, have to publish, and they describe in regulation, a, compu a community benefit report. And it's often a PDF file that's on the website, okay? So they have regulatory authority over tax-exempt organizations telling them to put things on their own websites. So here's the interesting question. Could you, in 90 days, get some rough consensus to say, not PDF, we want five pieces of data or 10 pieces of data accessible on your website in the same way we made you put the community benefit report out in machine readable form. And here's what that looks like. And here's how to do it in a sense that doesn't require any marginal cost. We did this with job postings. The president wanted every employer to hire veterans. We had a choice. 
Will the Labor Department create some big job database that every employer that wants to hire veterans put it in there and this poor guy has to know to visit that URL? Do you even know the Labor Department database? Well, why would you ever do that? So what we said was, aha, in 30 days, my intern, we don't have a lot of staff in the OSTP office, in the White House, my intern read the internet and said, oh, I think this should be the job posting internet standard for the world, the intern. I shopped it around to LinkedIn, Monster, Workday, blah, blah, blah. And I said, any feedback on this? By the end of the month, Google, Microsoft, and Yahoo put it through their schema.org standards organization and published within essentially 60 days. We will now treat this intern-generated job posting schema. And anyone that wishes to adopt it, our search engines will find it and treat it as structured data. I then had one power weapon, which is President was gonna have a rose garden ceremony for Veterans Day. So I could dangle in the spirit of commitments, Nick and I are loving this commitments model, Friday at 5 p.m., the event was like on Monday, I think, or a Tuesday. I said, if you're a company who's in the jobs industry, Monster, whatnot, LinkedIn, pledge to adopt the standard and make it the default for how you tag jobs when an employer wants to hire veterans. No money from the government, no law, and the only thing is, if you sign it, you're invited to the Rose Garden ceremony. And if you don't, you are not. And, and you'll be in the fact sheet, whatever. Everybody said yes. And linked a monster, which is a proprietary model, not an open model, was the last to say yes. They said yes at like 4.59. <laughs> but they said yes. 30,000 web pages today have marked up with the schema. Billions of objects have been voluntarily marked up. Now, not all of them are perfect, and all the standards are there. But my premise is, don't start the discussion after the data's in the government. Now let's try to massage it up and go. It's, wait a minute, NIST, convening, Hoover, chapter six of my book. Uh, let's get the industry to agree, no fee, no nothing, and voluntarily adopt and use the nudging power and maybe some hooks like I think what you things. can do with the Lincoln bedroom. Well, and there you go. That's the logic. And, and if you're interested, you could even lead the effort. Hey, I want to host a meeting on this and call the 990s and get the, you know, right? It doesn't require very much. There's already a lot of, there's already been a lot of work done with the Action Institute and some other folks like that. And, and the, the core data is, is governed by the forms of the IRS, the paper forms of the IRS. You got it. Has accreted over the years. You got it. Listen, we're off to a great roaring start. For Thanks the week. for coming, everybody. Thank you.